momentarily. Thanks for tuning in to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Uh, Neil and Bud, uh, the President of the United States is in his office now and would like to say a few words to you. Hello, Neil and Bud. I'm talking to you by telephone from the Oval Room at the White House. And as you talk to us from the Sea of Tranquility, it inspires us to redouble our efforts to bring peace and tranquility to Earth. For one priceless moment in the whole history of man, all the people on this Earth are truly one. Rice, of course, will be going there for one weekend. Whether or not she's going to help him clear brush or if they're actually going to discuss matters remains to be seen. But Snow's quote is, My guess is he's going to be working pretty hard, so this is not something where he's simply going to be gallivanting and ignoring the realities of the situation. Oh, really? Like all his previous vacations, which dragged on for months. Yeah, he seems to go on vacation at uh, very inopportune times, and of course it's now been revealed that... Back in 2001, uh, he was briefed about the threat orally by, uh, about Osama bin Laden and his response rather than, shall we say, uh, light some fires under uh, some bureaucrats was, uh, well, you've covered your ass to the briefer. Right. <laughs> Which, that was uh, August 01. Yes. So. And, of course, Pre-nastiness. Uh, the infamous uh, presidential daily briefing of Osama. August, I believe it was actually August 5th of 2001, in which he was in writing warned about the bin Laden situation. But anyway, this uh, oil leak up in uh, Prudhoe Bay, Alaska, involving BP, wow, it's going to have a major impact on, uh, well, the facts are simple. It represents 400,000 barrels of oil a day, 8% of domestic production, well, uh, prices uh, went up today in response to that, and um, with uh, wildfires going all over the Middle East, this is not a good situation. It, t- it takes this company apparently three to five days just to turn off the spigot, which gives you an idea of how involved this process is. And um, in theory, if it's uh, if it's a question of corrosion and uh, there are leaks, uh, and apparently. Uh, that uh, alerted the company, uh, some alert worker, noticed it. They really are going to have to inspect <laughs> the entire thing. Yeah, thousands of miles of pipeline. Uh, apparently, it will have more of an impact on the West Coast in terms of uh, maybe uh, immediate gas prices and uh, supply. But uh, Well, it'll be interesting to watch the, uh, or listen to on the radio, rather, uh, what the Japanese markets do tomorrow. Yeah, and one of the sad facts of uh, oil prices on the global market is some experts claim that as much a third of uh, as, as much as a third of the price is actually a, a result of speculation. Mm-hmm. And these giant unregulated hedge funds uh, which many economists have warned about the consequences of these hedge funds, they are actually causing a lot of this sort of zigzagging of oil um, on a daily to weekly basis. But the interesting fact is that before America invaded Iraq, oil was trading at $27 a barrel. 
So now that it's uh, apparently reached its second highest price of all time and, in fact, may go up even more tomorrow. Uh, as uh, as much as $10 a barrel yeah. is what's suggested here by a uh, Japanese commodities strategist in uh, Associated Press article. Yeah, and uh, that's scary because these unregulated hedge funds operate globally. Uh, many of these people make pennies on trading literally millions of oils, future shares, or whatever you want to call it, and it's... Uh, Rather a scary uh, situation, but uh, obviously there are global problems with uh, supply, and many experts point out that uh, sometime this decade, um, the, the uh, Earth will have basically used half of the oil uh, that it's ever produced, and the pessimists claim that it's going to go on a downward trend from here. We've already reached so-called peak oil. So uh, this is not a good situation. Um, there's always been a little bit of a mystery about exactly how many barrels Saudi Arabia actually really does have. Um, but one of the reasons that Bush's Iran policy just simply has not worked uh, with respect to getting the Europeans on board is the fact that the Europeans are dependent on that oil. Um, they're not interested really in an embargo against Iran. Um, because it would have deleterious effects on their economy. Well, and if Bush keeps uh, speaking, uh, and Cheney for that matter as well, uh, the way that they do about Russia, uh, we may push Russia right into that uh, Iran-India-China alliance that uh, has been kind of, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, uh, brewing there uh, mm -hmm. as a potential uh, future world power. Yeah, and an gestating. That's Gesta the word. Gestating. Well, I don't want the uh, right to life find out about that word. <laughs> well, boy, I've got some leftover brain damage awards from last week to quickly rattle through. And then I think you wanted to mention also the passing of Murray Bookchin uh, oh, yeah. last week. Um, put that clip in. Quickly, first and foremost, uh, the Ann Arbor News, it's a local paper, but it does try, and sometimes fairly well, to cover international things uh, with a regional <clears throat> bent. Um, but they deserve a brain damage award for having absolutely no article detailing the uh, massacre at Kana in last Monday's paper. It happened early Sunday morning, so it was too late for the Sunday papers. Uh, the only thing the Monday paper had last week was reactions to, but no actual detailed descriptions of. Uh, some people prefer to read their news than watch it on the television. Um, the Israeli ambassador to the United Nations last week said one of the most remarkable things I've heard in months. Uh, this is a direct quote. I wrote it down as I heard him say it on the BBC talking about the Kana uh, killing. Uh, quote, The victims may have been hit with Israeli fire, but they were killed by Hezbollah. If there were no Hezbollah in Lebanon, these attacks would not have happened. That's a remarkable uh, abuse of language. That's pure sophistry to uh, simultaneously do the killing and then blame your adversary for the killing. Uh, it uh, certainly oversimplifies uh, the actual context within which uh, Hezbollah uh, operates and has operated, uh, not only as a militia, but also as a political party 
um, Hezbollah, like it or not, is as legitimate a political entity as, say, for example, the Likud party, with whom it actually has a lot in common, as we've discussed here before. Now, to articulate this on my part is not to endorse Hezbollah. I want to make that very clear, but rather just to honestly assess how this uh, group functions. Uh, it, it is a political party. It, it has members in the uh, Lebanese cabinet. Um, yes, it has a powerful militia. Um, I've been reading Robert Fisk's The Great War for Civilization, of uh, kind of an overall history of the last 40 years, 30 years of the, the Middle East, and the extent to which Shia Muslims have been uh, put upon uh, openly attacked uh, by other Arab countries is uh, remarkable. So it's no mystery, if you know anything about the history of the Middle East, to see why Hezbollah, Shia militia, rose to the occasion to defend Palestinian Shia when nobody else in the world would. Nobody else in the world ever has defended Shia Muslims except for Iran, and this is not to excuse Iran or to uh, defend Hezbollah's uh, kidnappings and killings and so forth, but uh, Fisk's chapter on the Iran-Iraq war uh, spells out in pretty brutal detail the uh, mass killings uh, that Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, uh, other Arab countries paid for uh, in the Iran-Iraq War, which is a huge bloodbath, almost comparable to World War One, in uh, just the sheer amount of killing. And uh, the brutality of Saddam, when, of course, he was our friend. Well, and uh, this, yeah, when Saddam was really killing people with chemical weapons, the uh, neoconservatives said nothing. Uh, I'd really like to point out that was basically the people that were complaining about Saddam Hussein's behavior in the 1980s were actually the, the United Nations left-wing human rights groups. Right. And, of course, Mother Jones had a... Uh, in Iran. <laughs> yeah, in Iran. They had a uh, explosive uh, article at one point about the chemical weapons that were being used in um, that war by Saddam Hussein. And I think that it's interesting how you're seeing this entire Middle East um, really explode. I mean, it's there was a rally just the other day uh, in Iraq, in, in Baghdad, mm -hmm that the U.S. military claimed there were 14,000 people at. Now, this is nonsense. You can see from the photos that there are several hundred thousand there. The Shiites uh, uh, supporting Sadr, uh, Maktal al-Sadr, claim there were a million. I don't know that that's true, but that just gives you an idea of how convoluted the politics in the Middle East really is. Here we have... Rumsfeld appearing before Congress. My goodness. That was his response to Hillary Clinton. Oh, right. right. Yeah, that was classic. Um, and um, Maureen Dowd has a hilarious uh, column in Saturday's New York Times about that that I believe was reprinted in yesterday's mm -hmm. Ann Arbor News. Uh, but, not, but not talking about that for a second. Getting back to the interesting fact that John Warner, who uh, is basically a military blowhard, who chairs the um, Senate, um, I guess in this case, Armed Services Committee, uh, where Rumsfeld was appearing, interestingly said, well, I may go back to Congress with a resolution. We didn't authorize the United States to be involved in supporting a civil war or being involved in a civil war. We authorized, quote-unquote, uh, forced to overthrow Saddam Hussein. So it's very interesting that even a conservative like John Warner hmm. is actually now 
beginning to assert some congressional authority here. And uh, this may be an ominous development for the Bush administration's policy in the Middle East. But this whole jihadist situation in the Middle East is just, it's, it's, it's something that the United States, I don't think, really has a grasp of. Um, there's a really good article in the August 11th, 2005 edition of the New York Review of Books called The Truth About Jihad by uh, Max Roddenbeck, in which he basically uh, reviews a number of uh, fairly scholarly books on the subject, including one of the best uh, international analysts on the Middle East, uh, Olivier Roy uh, from France, um, who has at the time had a book out called Globalized Islam, The Search for a New Ummah. And uh, he goes into this, uh, reviewing these books, and at one point he writes, Roddenbeck that is, writes, this does not in Roy's view imply that strong action, uh, action, strong action against the jihadists would, should be avoided or that there are unrealistic hopes of negotiating with the most extreme radicals. It just means that pursuing a global war on terror is a silly idea, a metaphor, not a policy in Roy's words, because it risks infusing local disputes with the jihadists' millennialist goals. This, of course, is exactly what has happened. The old rallying cry of Palestine is now joined by a new one in Iraq, and to that, we can add Lebanon. Right. <laughs> and the United States is in a... It, it's, it's living in a fantasy land. To believe for one second, by the way, that a UN resolution uh, that the United States and France are pursuing at this point is somehow going to solve this problem is ludicrous. Let's remember that the entire UN budget is less than what the United States is spending in Iraq in a month. And at the beginning of the article, uh, Reddenbook points out, uh, talking about the cost of the war, and there's a couple of interesting items about that. Uh, for instance, the, the latest Harper's Index has uh, this amazing statistic. Ratio of the estimated U.S. cost of ratifying the Kyoto Protocol to the cost of the Iraq War so far, one-to-one. -one. Uh, we were told that the United States couldn't afford to ratify the Kyoto Accords. It was too expensive. Um, and as Roddenbeck points out in this uh, article, he notes, he says, the Iraq occupation is costing about $60 billion a year a sum considerably larger than that country's own GDP, 20% more than the New York City budget, annual budget. So it would be cheaper for the American taxpayer to just give Iraq $50 billion a year and get the hell out, <laughs> if you think about it. Right. It would cost us less if we just did that. Now, that, that proposal, of course, wouldn't go anywhere in the current Congress because we have these... Well, we have the delusional Vietnam thinking still occurring. We can't withdraw from Iraq because these and lives show that weakness. we yeah, show weakness and these lives that we've lost so far would have died in vain. Well, they have died in vain. <laughs> More deaths in vain aren't going to undo the hurt there. So it's 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 a it's a, a harebrained policy that we're continuing to pursue. Uh, and the Bush administration does not quite understand the significance of what is going on in Lebanon. I want to reiterate, two weeks ago I said the civilian death toll in Lebanon at the time, two weeks ago, was seven times 
mm-hmm. adjusted for population. That is now up to 25 times 9-11. There are estimated, by the way, to be a million refugees involved here. Indeed. Yes, Israel is dropping leaflets, warning people, we're going to bomb you tomorrow if you don't flee. Flee to where? Where can these people possibly go? The roads have been bombed. There have been numerous stories of caravans of fleeing refugees being shot at. It's absolute, It's an absolute humanitarian disaster uh, in, in upcoming weeks if something isn't done. And as I've predicted, this, this war that's occurring in Lebanon is going to last months, not weeks, because Israel, of course, has actually realized they don't have enough troops on the ground. <coughs> yeah. Sounds familiar. Well, let's talk real briefly about the uh, the attempted uh, Security Council revolution, which Lebanon has dismissed, not as the USA Today boldly asserts in its headline, Hezbollah rejects uh, UN Security Council resolution. No, it was, was Lebanon. Um, well, so is Israel. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, exactly. And uh, to, to come back to that point in a second, uh, so William, right, William Wallace, uh, writing in uh, today's Financial Times, quotes a uh, senior Arab government official who sought on an anonymity here, um, has described this resolution as, quote, no less than the adaptation uh, by the international community of Israel's position. So <laughs> there's no way that's going to fly. Whereas if you look at what the Lebanese government itself had actually asked for, if I can find that one here. Here we go. This is as of last week. Uh, let's see. In Beirut, the government underlined its determination to disarm Hezbollah by adopting a series of proposals to end the Israeli offensive and the fighting with Hezbollah. So, see, there you go. It's an in-house thing. Lebanon recognizes it needs to do that, has sought support to do so uh, for a while now. To continue with Harvey Morris's article from uh, last weekend's Financial Times, the Lebanese cabinet, in which Hezbollah is represented, voted late on Thursday to back proposals calling for an immediate and comprehensive ceasefire, followed by an exchange of prisoners and a withdrawal of the Israeli army from Lebanon. Israeli troops would then be replaced by U.N. forces in the Sheba Farms region, uh, and that was what the Lebanese government was looking for. Well, of course, the Israeli government can't accept that because they don't want to negotiate. They just want their... How many kidnapped soldiers? Uh, three. Three. Total. One one supposedly by Hamas, one by uh, uh, Hezbollah. Right. Allegedly. And, and there's never been any confirmation of this whole thing, so, by the way. That's the stumbling point here? The, the Lebanese request seems reasonable. It, it, it seems to address the need, uh, the, you know, the rightful concern with this uh, militia uh, power in the south of Lebanon, uh, uh, but they want to do it themselves. Uh, so no surprise that the, uh, the language so far has not been satisfactory. Well, and it's just, it's just so unclear what it ultimately is going to happen to this Lebanese government because it's, it, it's just simply growing weaker by the day. Yeah. And it's the country is being systematically destroyed again, <laughs> again, and uh, it's remarkable. By the way, uh, in the uh, July 20th edition of the London Review of Books, there's a fascinating uh, little article about <clears throat> uh, the Israeli legal system, uh, if we wish to call it that, because it seems that uh, Israel, um, and this is by the way documented by. Uh, Ironically, uh, the IDF's own um, 
compliance with uh, the freedom of information law in Israel, states that as of January, there were 794 Palestinians who were being held under what is known as, quote, administrative detention, unquote. Uh, and this is very familiar to what is going on uh, in, in America with respect to Guantanamo and some of these uh, various military prisons that we have scattered around the globe. We have sort of an archipelago of those at the moment. Um, but this is just fascinating because this is right out of Kafka's trial. Um, it, it's basically Indeed. a detail of um, the, the questioning that went on between a Palestinian lawyer uh, trying to represent a client and the police prosecutor. Uh, and it's just fascinating to read this transcript. Um, Elon Pappy, that wrote the article, states that many of the detainees are classified as manua, forbidden in Hebrew, and the Israeli Secret Service is allowed to detain families and, and Palestinians that are then denied any contact with a lawyer while they're being interrogated. They are also kept in detention without a lawyer. So this is amazing because he writes, the Knesset is now debating a law that would allow a detention without access to a lawyer for a month. This is a farce. Detentions are already going on for longer than a month. Who needs the law? Well, this little um, exchange is fascinating. The lawyer for the Palestinian says, what is the uh, allegation? What did my client do? Police prosecutor. It's in the secret report. What's he sp suspected of? It's all in the secret report. I cannot say he's engaged with a hostile organization. Is there anything specific, says the lawyer. The activity and the involvement are all in the secret report. So this just goes on and on and on for five minutes. And this is perfect, and it is right out of Kafka. Because I'll conclude with this. Um, because the lawyer's trying to get specifics, and he gets to the point where he says, so are we talking about a money transfer? The prosecutor says, it's all in the secret file. The lawyer in despair, it's all in the secret file? What can one say? The judge says, you go to a closed door, then you try the window, and that's closed too. You keep trying, but do not be surprised when there are no answers. Well, this is right out of the castle, <laughs> right out of, right out of, uh, uh, out of wow. Kafkaesque, right out of the trial. You know, what is my client accused of? What are the charges? Well, we right. can't tell you. <laughs> it's in the secret file. It's amazing. And, of course, this is the so-called legal uh, detain detention of Palestinians. There's all sorts of kidnappings, by the way, that, that go on. It's not as if only Hezbollah and Hamas are involved in these kinds of shenanigans in the Middle East. And uh, the United States has not stood up for international law. Everybody in the world right now is demanding a ceasefire, requesting right. a ceasefire. And the United States is going into some fiction. Well, you we can't work on that. We want to work on a permanent framework for peace in the Middle East. Well, yeah, that is a, a fantasy. negotiated settlement between Israelis and Palestinians. Because if you begin to look at the root of the problem, it goes back to occupied territories. It goes back to several U.N. resolutions that Israel is not in compliance with. It is almost like this exchange with the lawyer. You go to a closed door, then you try a window. That's closed, too. You keep trying. But do not be surprised when there are no answers. That's from the judge in the Israeli court. 
<laughs> Nicely poetic, but pretty bleak uh, existentially. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, this raises the point that I, you know, mentioned earlier talking about Hezbollah is nobody stands up for Palestinians. Uh, the other Arab states don't for the various reasons. They often play lip service to. Um, sure, let's disarm Hezbollah. But why not also disarm the settler movement? An incredibly uh, illegal uh, enterprise, uh, settling occupied territory, um, disarm the whole region. Well, there's a lot of money to be made in, in selling all these things, so that's unlikely to occur. But uh, if Hezbollah is going to be uh, disarmed, and I'm all for that, the settlers should also be disarmed. Um, and as far as uh, you've mentioned the UN's uh, budget limitations, uh, I guess we can give a brain damage award to Olmert for moxie or chutzpah or something because of the stipulations he's put on his description of an ideal UN force. Um, this is a bizarre quote. This is from uh, Thursday, August 3rd's Financial Times. Uh, of the proposed international force, which would be only 2,000 peacekeepers short of the force of the Democratic Republic, Short of the force in the Democratic Republic of Congo, the biggest the UN has ever deployed, Olmert said, quote, It, this UN security force, has to be made up of armies not of retirees, of real soldiers and not pensioners who have come to spend some leisurely months in southern Lebanon, but rather an army with combat units. What? What a bizarre statement. I mean, he's... One side of them is saying, oh, I don't want a bunch of softy. I, I want the U.N. Peace Force to come in and continue Israel's fight, well, which and, won't happen. Yeah, and that is a fiction, too, um, because that's not the role of the U.N., unfortunately, in a peacekeeping force situation or not. Um, it's totally unclear to me where these troops are coming from, uh, even if there is such a U.N. resolution, because I, I, I don't understand what a U.N. resolution does at this point. Uh, when none of the parties are going to uh, <laughs> adhere to it, it's right. it's just a fantasy. I mean, it's it's a piece of paper, and for the Bush administration to be pursuing a UN resolution at this point is sort of ludicrous. I mean, it's farcical. Um, heck, the United States doesn't comply with UN resolutions, do they? <laughs> and when the UN is in the way, they uh, well, they start wars in Iraq, uh, in spite of the fact that there were. Uh, U.N. inspectors on the grounds uh, searching for those so-called weapons of mass destruction. Right. Well, the Bush administration's attitude towards the, even the, the simple concept of international law uh, has been so repellent and uh, negligent that the, the concept of international law is weaker now than it has been since probably the Middle Ages. Seriously. Yeah, David Cole, the outstanding legal uh, mind from Georgetown University, has had several articles in all sorts of prominent uh, uh, periodicals about how the Bush administration has systematically um, not adhered to international law and weakened all of the concepts in theory that the UN operates under. Right. And it's amazing because the United States actually has opted out deliberately of some of these uh, so-called treaties on the grounds that uh, well, it would uh, impair our military's uh, ability to pursue the global war on terror. Well, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Maybe this is why uh, North Korea has opted out of the uh, non-proliferation treaty. Right. Iran is pursuing, allegedly, a nuclear weapon. Um, I don't think they ever actually signed the non-proliferation treaty. 
or if they did, they signed it when the Shah was in power. And we now have historical documentation that the United States was actually uh, supporting a nuclear program in Iran during the 1970s and 60s. Uh, this was part of the Kissinger policy. So uh, the United States' footprints, fingerprints, and toenails are all over the Middle East, and it's uh, a very messy situation, <laughs> and not likely to get better anytime soon. No, and it's, it occurred to me the other day that <clears throat> in the first Gulf War, Israel was the ally that had to lay low. You know, don't respond. If a Scud missile lands, uh, you know, Patriot missiles were in place so that Israel wouldn't have to respond to keep George Bush the first's uh, alliance intact. Now, uh, Israel is the ally that won't make the fight any easier. Yeah, and, and it's amazing, you know, when you talk about this cakewalk theory, because I think that that's something that is very dominant in neoconservative military thinking these days. It probably was uh, part of the Israeli cabinet deliberations about this latest uh, incursion into Lebanon. Cakewalk theory, of course, promulgated here in the United States by Ken Edelman and Dick Cheney. Um, Donald Rumsfeld, while he's guilty of many, many things, was not part of the cakewalk uh, propaganda spin. That was a Dick Cheney, Ken Edelman mm -hmm. policy that uh, the Bush administration just silently went along with. And I just finished COBRA too, the outstanding military analysis of the uh, preparation for the war in Iraq. Mm. What is staggering, what is mind-boggling, is that the United States spent 18 months developing the military plan. It essentially started uh, from the orders of George Bush, uh, our decider, back in December of uh, 2001. Uh, followed suspiciously shortly after a William Sapphire column that advocated uh, a war with Iraq. It's very interesting. Mm, leakage. Bush spent two sessions of his entire presidency um, before the war understanding what the post-war um, situation would be like. He was briefed on the 10th of March and the 12th of March. That's all he ever understood of the matter. And it's why the uh, occupation of Iraq has gone so disastrously, because they've made so many bad moves. Um, and Donald Rumsfeld, Dick Cheney, and D Condoleezza Rice, and George Bush are the four horsemen of the apocalypse. No doubt about it. Well, uh, of course, the news last week that... Uh more soldiers are going to be brought into Baghdad. Uh, that has begun to occur uh, as of uh, Sunday, this article. U.S. soldiers sent to bolster security in Baghdad were seen for the first time on the streets of the capital Saturday as Iraqi police used loudspeakers to reassure people that the Americans were there to protect them. A little bit further down in the article, we're told uh, that... Uh, police use loudspeakers also to encourage residents to reopen shops and go about their business, which is always so comforting. To, it's okay, go about your business, people. Coming through uh, police loudspeakers as uh, occupying forces roll down the uh, boulevard there. Uh, the short article concludes with the observation that U.S. commanders hope the presence of heavily armed American troops will intimidate sectarian death squads. But, you know, they just might, unfortunately, attract them. Well, why dispatch uh, U.S. troops? Why not dispatch Mel Gibson? <laughs> <laughs> he could probably rally those Iraqi police forces. Uh, he seems to be a, a firebrand of uh, 
anti-Semitic hatred, and you have to really appreciate it when you see a uh, <laughs> Mel Gibson attached to a missile in a, in a cartoon <laughs> being shot by Hezbollah <laughs> against Israel, because that uh, th- this whole Mel Gibson thing is, is almost comical. I don't know if they can make a movie about his arrest, but <laughs> it's got Monty Python-esque uh, potential written Indeed. all over it. Well, uh, it looks like we have been uh, signaling that we're out of time. So Yazoo City Calling will be coming up next. Uh, we'll have to talk about Joe Lieberman next week. Maybe he'll have a new job in the near future. Yeah, he looks like he's doomed. Um, and good riddance to him because he's, uh, well, we'll talk about his situation next week, win or lose. Anyway, 